Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Why don't you let him play it? Oh, he could if he wanted to. <laughs> I'm sure. Does he, does he dance as well? Only with me. Don't be so sure. Wait till I ask him nicely. Come. Mm, monsieur, pardon. Haven't we met before? Yes, I think we have. Do you remember that wonderful waltz we had together in Paris? Yes. La, la, la. Leave him alone! Hey. What's the matter with you? She doesn't want you bothering him. He's not a he. He's just a bunch of old drags. Hello, Jenna. How are you tonight? Bart, I can't. We've kept this cheery charade up for too long. This year has been a nightmare. And you know what's kept me going through all of it? Taking family-sized buckets of anison, the wonder cure for headaches, neuritis, and neuralgia, and smoking boxes of Chesterfield cigarette. No, I'm kidding, because it is now time for my yearly sales pitch to our dear, lovely listeners Two, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podorama you kids listen to. Not only does it help us grow our audience, but it also makes us feel really good. And quite frankly, it's been a year, and we, we need we, it. We deserve it. Yeah. So uh, hit that subscribe button and like us on Facebook. Did you mention Facebook? No, you can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, any of these things. They're all good and easy, and they don't cost you anything. And I do want to give a quick shout out to our first written review on Apple Podcasts from Lucky Jackson. We were super thrilled to see that, and and I'm not sure that I know who you are, and I appreciate you all the more for that. (laughs) Thanks, Lucky. Thanks, Lucky. Well, anyhow, I'm okay, Bart. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm uncomfortable now that we had to do that whole kind of self-marketing bit, <laughs> but uh, I'm doing okay. It's once a year, you know? Not a lot to ask for. Please. You can also ignore it. Fine. Just keep listening. <laughs> yeah. Keep listening. That's all I ask. Yeah, but it's a Kiss, Mary Kill episode. We're up to 1965. So that means we've done half the decade and we're on to our second half of the decade now. I'm pretty excited about that. That's solid. Yeah. What was happening in 1965? Uh, well, I didn't do a ton of research, but I do know that, for instance, the U.S. entered the Vietnam War in 1965, March, I believe. The Watts riots happened in 65. You know, probably a lot of other stuff happened, too. But this is a movie podcast, so I'm going to talk about what was happening in movies in 1965. And the movie of the year, the movie that every single person and their children and their grandparents went to see in 1965 was The Sound of Music. So that was the number one box office hit in America that year. Not the 10th victim? No. I can't believe I don't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a lot of your favorites came out this year, though. Tenth Victim, Mickey One. I knew her well. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Mickey One. Yeah, well, yeah, why not? Juliet of the Spirits. Do you love, love, love that movie? 
Help came out this year. <laughs> the Loved One. You you keep talking about that movie. That's a good movie. Repulsion. Perot Le Fou. Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. That's a great one. Oh, but let me get back to the top 10 because I know everybody's dying to hear what number two is. Yeah, what were the norms? Dr. Zhivago. I like Dr. Zhivago. Yeah, that's that movie's okay. Pretty good. Three was Thunderball. After Thunderball, there was kind of a big drop-off, and uh, number four was Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines, that British movie about early air people, turn of the century. Uh, and The Great Race came after that, another movie set around the same time with an equally goofy slapsticky sensibility. That Darn Cat is number six. Cat Baloo, number seven. A lot of cats. What's New Pussycat is number eight. And Faster Pussycat Kill Kill also came out this year. So it was a whole lot of cats. Yeah. A Shenandoah was number nine, the Jimmy Stewart Civil War drama. And number 10, Von Ryan's Express, the Frank Sinatra World War II prisoner of war escape movie. So that's what most Americans were watching that year. Uh, on Cinema 60, I was going to go through our top 10 of the year. You already mentioned Piero LeFou, which is tops for us this year. And number two is the Saragossa Manuscript, also 1965. For a few dollars more, Le Bonheur, Simon of the Desert, Alphaville, The Mermaid, that Hong Kong musical that was awfully enjoyable, The Pleasure Girls, which we watched in our first episode, OSS 117 Mission for a Killer, or as we prefer to call it, the only kind of good OSS 117 movie, the one in Brazil. And finally, John Goldfarb, Please Come Home, probably the worst movie that got a major release in the 60s that we've covered so far. Yeah, that one's way down there, right? Yeah, I kind of love it for that reason. Yeah, that's about it. We had Beach Blanket Bingo and a whole lot of beach movies. This was like year zero for beach movies. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and The Ipcress File, sort of uh, anti-Bond movies that I really enjoy. And that's 1965 in cinema. You know I'm actually named after The Ipcress File? You are? Yeah, Jenna Ipcress. Uh <laughs> 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 you going there for a second. <laughs> I had no idea where you're going with that. <laughs> Go on, sorry. <laughs> I thought you were going for a Harry Palmer joke there. <laughs> but now we're going to talk about six more movies from 1965 that we've not covered yet on the show. Two movies that we uh, Jenna and I have been itching to see for quite some time. Those are our Kiss movies. Two movies that we each love. Uh, those are our Mary movies and two movies we hate from 1965. Those are our kill movies. We're going to start with My Kiss for 1965, and that's Man is Not a Bird. first film by Dusan Makaveev, the Yugoslavian director, who went on to make some pretty outrageous, controversial movies, W.R. Mysteries of the Organism and Sweet Movie in the early 70s, and, and a favorite of yours, Jenna, from the 80s, The Coca-Cola Kid. 
with your boyfriend, Eric Roberts. <laughs> you like that movie. I love that movie. So he's um, your boyfriend, too. <laughs> <laughs> but this, uh, yeah, this is kind of done in a semi-documentary style, but then goes arty at times. It's about a guy named Jan who's a mechanical engineer, and he comes to this copper mining town to do some construction work and bring their copper mine up to date. Uh, while he's there, he goes in to get his mustache combed or something at the barber shop, and uh, there's a, a young blonde woman named Rika who tells him where he can find an apartment to live in while he's staying in town, and uh, it happens to be in, in her parents' house, which is where she lives as well. And even though he's you know middle-aged, not much of a looker, and she's a young, pretty thing, they have a flirtation and a romance. There's also another storyline going on with one of the workers in the copper mine named Barbulovic, who was just sent to prison for a few days because he was involved in some knifing of a, there, there was a bar fight where a singer got knifed and he didn't really have anything to do with it and is all upset because he lost the pay for the, those three days he could have been working and he's, an example of uh, the proletariat, I guess, the typical working man. And you get to see some of his problems with his domestic situation, namely that he's giving his wife's nice dresses to his mistress. And yeah, it's it's kind of a slice of life thing, but it also gets a little philosophical, like Eastern European 60s movies tend to get. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's not too shocking, you know, in comparison to the things that Makaveyev would go on to do, but, uh, you know, it, it gets a bit sexy at times. Did you like this one, Jenna? It's a weird movie. I actually really, I mean, I guess I sort of feel this way after all of Dusan Makaveyev's movies. <laughs> <laughs> and this is honestly one of his least weird movies in many ways. It's really as you said, sort of shot in this Soviet realism kind of documentary slice of life, kitchen sink drama kind of style. But it sort of is, you know, you kind of keep waiting for something to happen. And even when things do happen, you think it's something else is going to happen. And then it just sort of folds, you know, and, and it really only comes alive when like they're having sex, like that's when things get kind of arty and cool and really fun looking visually. So I mean, which is not surprising. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I feel like everything that that Makaveev makes is just super horny. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, what did you think this was about? Like, I didn't, I liked it. It was interesting. And I sort of, I have a crackpot theory about it. But what would you get out of this? Well, I mean, I think on a basic level, it's kind of just about how, uh, you know, just going off the title, Man is Not a Bird, it sort of suggests that man is not free. And then the movie kind of deals with free will and how we all lack it. We all kind of have our roles to play in life. And despite us wanting to like change our ways or, or go in a different direction and you know, not do exactly what you know, our path in life has directed us to do, then in the end, we just sort of end up continuing to play our roles. Well, there's a whole thing about a hypnotist, right? The hypnotist comes to town. Yeah. What'd you make of that? (laughs) I mean, this movie starts out with this hypnotist sort of preaching to everyone and saying that uh, it's a hypnotist, right? Or is it someone else? Yeah, well, he he shows up at the beginning and he's got some like anti-superstition thing that he's preaching about. You think he's... 
he might be some kind of religious person, but no, he's a hypnotist, and you find that out later when he does a hypnotism show, and then later he comes back in the movie and he's got a circus and he's got a you know a bunch of performing people that he's with. So this guy just uh, I don't know what his role is exactly, but he's there to bring some kind of outside perspective into the movie. Yeah, he's interesting because he's preaching about this idea that magic is pointless and superstition is pointless and, you know, none of it's real. And then he brings a bunch of people on stage and he hypnotizes them to just act like fools, like really make fools out of each other, you know, like to get two men to kiss or I don't remember something, something silly that would be controversial in 65 or like one person like you're a monkey now and like jump in this guy's lap or whatever. And then this is also just sort of separate from the other two storylines. And I kind of took away from this as being a movie that was about the idea that the only way that you can have control of your life is to have a bad experience. (laughs) You have this young girl, Rika, the hairdresser who invites Jan to stay in her parents' house as a a boarder and she eventually seduces him. He's much older than her and she sort of seduces him. And then her parents find out and they like beat the crap out of her. And meanwhile, Jan is getting awards at work for like boosting efficiency or something. The best line in the movie actually is the factory head who's saying something like, there's enough gold mine here to make a set of teeth for every Yugoslavian. (laughs) (laughs) Copper. Copper. I have gold. It's a copper mine. And then you have that other wife whose husband gave away her beloved dress to his mistress. And when she finds out, she freaks out at him. And he says, you know, like, well, it's my money. I feed you. I clothe you so I can and I can beat you. I'll do whatever I want with your dress. And then she goes to the market and she sees this other woman in her dress. And so she starts this fight with her and starts beating this woman up. They all get hauled into the police station and... You know, the wife is rightfully upset. The mistress refuses to acknowledge the situation. And the husband says, like, whatever, I don't care, you know. And eventually this wife, she sort of wakes up. She wakes up from this experience with her husband beating her to say, you know, we're all being hypnotized by our crappy husbands. (laughs) And sort of finds some sense of at least acknowledgement of her situation where previously she was sort of had more acceptance of just being miserable and bitter, you know, and then the hypnotist, I mean, you get all these people on stage who are doing these embarrassing things in front of everyone. And it just felt like to me, the whole thing just sort of felt like this way to talk about how we're sleepwalking through life and a bad experience will jar you out of it, whether or not it can change it. But I don't know like what, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't I feel like I'm missing something is the other thing. Well, it's a really cynical movie. So he sets up these sort of bad experiences that you think are going to change these characters and, and set them off to, you know, fix their lives and set them free, but really they just, you know, they're they're stuck in their roles. My, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when the uh the teacher brings a bunch of school kids to the copper mine, to the factory, and they're watching Barbalovic you know, shovel dirt. And the teacher's talking about, you know, the workers doing their work and how it's a smooth running machine. And just basically painting this picture of the humans who work in this factory, just sort of cogs in the machine. And this is their role in life. And this is what they'll be. And, but he's talking about it with this sense of pride. Like, 
teaching these children, yep, and this will be you when you're an adult too. You'll just be another cog in the machine, making the, the wheels go around and accomplishing nothing other than that. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the movie doesn't come off as depressing because Makaveyev has got sort of this bitter, cynical sense of humor and he keeps it kind of light. It's all done kind of tongue in cheek in a way, or, or it's, it's sort of just sort of poking fun at our ideas that we think of ourselves as free, but really in this world, humans are, are stuck in their roles. The thing about, I think, a lot of these, especially Eastern European movies from this time, is that, you know, they're always having to deal with some censor. So I think that you have to do some math <laughs> to figure out what's going on half the time, because they, they will sort of show you these incongruent images you know and maybe a censor would look at this movie and think well she's immoral and here's a hypnotist saying religion is bad and you know and here's the good cog in the machine who gets awarded for shortening times and and boosting efficiency and he goes off unscathed and you know here's a, a husband beating his wife that's not nice you know like so there's these things where you can look at them and you can sort of dismiss them as this sort of very flat black and white version of something but then when you really kind of look past it, and especially when you see the visual language of all of it, you get a different story, which sometimes doesn't even fully cohere with what you're actually seeing. <laughs> and I don't know, I, I have to admit that I haven't seen enough Eastern European movies to wholeheartedly say that's what's happening in this film. But I know that's mostly the case for a lot of Russian movies. Yeah, I, I'm guessing that's kind of what's happening here. And there is... To a degree, I guess, some research that has to be done to really understand exactly what was happening in Yugoslavia in, in 65. But I, I think it's a watchable movie, though. It was certainly an interesting choice. And again, all of the sex scenes are really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I wish more sex scenes were sort of more artfully shot in this way and, and interesting. You rarely get a sex scene that has any sort of purpose other than just like, and now you get to see them naked. <laughs> yeah, the scenes are totally motivated and shooting them that way. He, he does it for a reason. Like this is escape for these people. They're it's an escape from the harsh, gritty reality that's happening outside the walls of this apartment. And yeah, we feel free from that while we're watching these scenes. And all of the, these Eastern European movies, like this one luckily is easy to appreciate on, you know, just a, a basic human level. But I'm sure if, like you were saying, if we knew more about what was going on in Yugoslavia in this year and just more about you know, Soviet politics and socialist governments. And I'm sure there's there's lots of commentary on what's going on in this movie that would really open it up and would make it even more interesting. But, uh, you know, it's that stuff went over our heads, but it's still an enjoyable movie. I mean, it's also just fun to see the first film of a director that you've seen other films by anyhow. I, I didn't even know that he had started in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, he made several documentaries before this, I think. This was his first feature fiction film. I think he made one or two documentaries after this, too. Well, I'm moving us even further east. I ended up choosing Walked. Yeah, 
directed by Yash Chopra. And this, Walked, is a... I actually almost feel like I might have made a mistake in choosing this for Kiss, Mary Kill just because we're going to be talking about it and then moving on. And this movie was pretty important, <laughs> actually, in Bollywood history. Uh, this was... You know, one of these classic Bollywood pictures of the the later golden era, and it was a huge critical and commercial success, and it won a bunch of Filmfare Awards. Yash Chopra got Best Director. Pretty sure it, it was like the type of film that launched a million spinoffs and catapulted all of its stars to even further heights. It created this archetype of films about the lives of the wealthy and glamorous, which was, I guess most of what the 70s and 80s Bollywood focused on. And it stars Sadhana, who was uh, also a top 1960s actress. And so there were all of these different little threads that we probably should have <laughs> used this for. But I actually, as much as I like Bollywood, I don't really know that much about it. And so I was really curious to see this because it was such a you know well-known film in the world of Bollywood. I'm happy I watched it. It was fun. <laughs> but it's also really long and really complex. And we didn't even watch the full-length version. We watched the version that's on Amazon Prime, which is about 45 minutes shorter than the full version. So who knows what we may have missed out on. Right. And it's still, even I think that that version, it's still almost three hours and the, the original is over three hours. Well, Bollywood movies in general are always three hours plus. Right. I think a lot of what got cut out was maybe singing. Watching this on Amazon, which I almost would recommend if you haven't seen it, it's really easy to access it. Watching it on Amazon, though, you can see exactly where they cut things. Like certain songs get cut in half. Certain scenes get cut. There's some jumping around of timelines, which I, I'll get into the plot in a second here, but it's, <laughs> I'm not, I'm just going to scratch the surface of it. I'm not going to go ahead and tell you every twist and turn because it's impossible. But they butcher it a little bit on Amazon, but it's still watchable and it's still enjoyable. But there is, I found it to be a little more confusing than I think it needed to be. But it's only because it's so complex. So, the plot, <laughs> let's see. Let's see if I can do this off the top of my head. The plot is that a father is boasting. He you know, talks about how much he loves his wife, how much he loves his three sons who are very young, and how life is great. He's going to open his new store, and everything's going to go great. His sons are going to be really rich, and it's all going to be great. And then, of course, some wise man tells him, you know, don't count your chickens. <laughs> And warns him to not plan for the future because, you know, if, if you are so sure of yourself, you never know what's going to happen. And, of course, that night there's a massive earthquake and a lot of people die, <laughs> which is terrible. They show you all these people dying, like a baby nudging a, the dead body of its parents, kind of like really graphic and messed up. Uh, but, you know, what happens in earthquakes? And it's done with, you know, Godzilla-style miniatures so <laughs> yeah. when it, you know this horrible tragedy is it's hard to take all that seriously because uh these little uh you know miniature houses are falling down and yeah it's it's fun to watch but it's hard to see it as the tragedy that it, they want you to see it as but it's a tragedy for this family 
Right, because it splits up all of the sons and the parents. So, so first we see Ravi, who is played by Sunil Dut. And I apologize if I'm messing up these names. It's because I'm ignorant. He gets picked up by a rich family and raised. Like, they just pick him up off the street and they're like, oh, we, we tr- wanted to have a kid anyhow. And they just take him. And then we have Raja, who is played by Raj Kumar. He is in an orphanage where the guy who runs this orphanage is really cruel and beats him up. And so he then runs away from the orphanage at a very young age and and ends up growing up into this life of crime where he is a master thief. But, you know, he's looking good while he's doing it. He's not like living on the streets. And then there is Vijay, who is played by Sashi Kapoor. And... He is the youngest child and he is with the mother and they end up in a refugee camp. And then the father, meanwhile, goes to the orphanage looking for his children and ends up strangling the orphanage director to death because he finds out that Raja ran away and that he was cruel to him. And then it cuts to like 19 years later. So everyone's grown up exactly in the way that you would expect they are. Uh, Ravi is rich. Uh, Raja is doing fine but he's stealing stuff and Vijay and his mother are not they're on the ropes like they're getting things done but the money's a problem and the father is in prison and then (laughs) from there basically this tale sort of you have these two other women there's Mina and there's Renu Mina is Sadhana a super popular Bollywood actress she was a huge star at the time, but her career didn't last very long because she got ill. She's thought of as one of the greats, but just of this era because of her short-lasting career. What did you find out about her when you did research? I I was finding out more information about her hairstyle and her clothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I found some fun information on uh, fun information being the keyword on a cinestan.com where talking about how her haircut in this movie was christened the Sadhana cut and was inspired by Audrey Hepburn's style and it became all the rage after this movie and also her Curdy Churita like the way that that her outfit is tailored in this movie apparently became also a huge massive craze and and dominated popular styles for years so i thought that was kind of interesting (laughs) but the plot is just basically that these brothers all sort of they keep passing each other you know it's like this constant they'll you know they kind of meet each other and they don't recognize each other and they don't know and it's this whole there's a bunch of love triangles and the whole thing culminates in a courtroom scene that is both the best courtroom scene I've ever watched <laughs> because it is completely batshit crazy. But this whole movie's crazy, and that's what's really fun about it. I mean, it reminded me, coming from a, a not uh, Indian background, it reminded me of like a telenovela kind of style thing, which is just all of this really over-the-top drama and dr- dramatic reveals and secret dead brothers who are actually alive there's like a murder that needs to be solved in the end really nutty coincidences and people keep passing each other on the street they don't know it's each other and it takes like you know the entire film for them to finally figure it out spoiler 
but I thought this was really fun. <laughs> In a way, I, I it's so unrealistic. It's so heightened. I mean, I, I'd seen a, a couple other Bollywoods of this era. I'm... I like Bollywood in general. I have to be in the right mood for it. It's just so different than Hollywood filmmaking or what would make it to international film festivals at the time. And it's so its own thing. I mean, you're right saying that just dealing with this one film or just, you know, dipping our little toes into Bollywood here. There's so much to be said about the genre and, and the, just dealing with this one movie. We're just going to barely scratch the surface. But I can't say that it was good you know the way the movie is put together it's so absurd and unrealistic the acting is not great or at least it's not the style of acting that as westerners were sort of used to watching and i found it difficult to watch at times just because it was so strange and what you would call not good by <laughs> the standards where you were used to but it also was really captivating for the same reason, you, know, you sort of get drawn into this world and you're sort of figuring out what the genre traditions are in Bollywood films. I would take breaks from it, but when I wasn't watching it, I was thinking about it and I found it sort of addictive. And when I finally got through it, I wanted to watch more. It's a strange world that I could really see why people get sucked into it. I think you need to watch more soap operas. <laughs> not that I watch soap operas I'll be honest but like I found this really fun to watch I, I mean like there's definitely it's dated you know and it requires a, a degree of patience it's just the pacing to me is just it, it feels old you know it feels like it's from several decades ago which it is so I'm not going to really <laughs> you know fault it for that but I found it engaging I mean again like the story is so over the top ridiculous that that's perfect like as long as you accept the fact that like now I'm going to watch something that's nutty and a little romantic and completely improbable and I'm going to have fun doing it then you're going to have a good time I don't see any reason why not again that courtroom scene is amazing there are bags of blood there are dummies there are fake knives and real knives. Things happen in this courtroom scene. And all I can hope is that this is what every single trial looks like in India. My real problem with the structure of this movie is that you know this family is going to find each other. Or if they don't, it'll be, you know, just barely not finding each other. Like the mother will die before they actually all finally get together because she's ill. Or you're just waiting for these five members of the same family who are all in this courtroom together, not recognizing each other, you know that at some point <laughs> it's, it's all going to come together and they're going to realize who everybody else is. And it's a little bit grueling just waiting for that to finally happen, like how they draw it out. That was part of why I, I was having a little difficulty getting through it. I feel like this is it's perfect now to be made into a television miniseries. That's exactly what I think the vast majority of miniseries are like if you just sit down and watch them all in one go. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, like, that was fine for me because the characters are charming. They're fun. I enjoyed seeing what everyone was up to and watching them go through their day-to-day -day and kind of learning the obvious lessons and opening their eyes to what, what could be and and kind of going through. It's like this very classic, you know, everyone kind of learns humility in the end which seems to be really the lesson, which is kind of interesting too. Well, the title of the movie, Walked, means time. 
And uh, I mean, in a way, it's saying that the total opposite thing that the the last movie we talked about is saying. This movie's saying that you know you can't plan for the future because you never know what's going to happen. Like time will tell. You can't predict your life. It, you know what happens happens. And I mean, I guess in in a way, both films sort of deal with fate and and that we all have our lives mapped out for us. But man is not a bird, sort of saying how predictable our lives are and that we're, we're sort of locked into this groove that we can never escape. And, and time is saying, uh, walked is saying that anything can happen. Don't try to plan your life out too carefully because anything could happen. I guess this plot where family gets separated and then eventually finds uh, one another at the end really took off after this film. So there are just countless Bollywood films that followed this, that followed the same kind of storyline. I know in that way that this movie was important. I, I like that. I like the message about time in this movie. And I think that the ending was actually a little emotional. Maybe part of it is that the, the grueling amount of time that you have to spend waiting for this family to reunite. But when they finally reunited, it wasn't corny. It was actually played off very sincerely and sweetly and and i actually found it kind of really refreshing and the fact that the message is slightly more philosophical than just your general morality play like most of these western equivalents would have given you it would have been like and that's why you don't you know it's like it's really just about you know like live in the moment and love people that you love because who knows what's going to happen next I like all the songs in this. I mean, there wasn't anything that was really stand out to me, but it was all fun. I like the initial song where they're singing. Uh, I think it's Sadhana singing it in that room that has like red velvet sunken living room. <laughs> <laughs> like the Beatles living room in Help. I really right. love that. That's Same sunken, <laughs> the sunken living room that they that every 60s home must have had. It's a soap opera. You're right. There, it's a uh, it's it's plot, 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 and there's charm to it, and it's got a style. Like just watching how rich people in India lived in the '60s is really probably the most fascinating thing about this movie, and clearly fascinated the people of India watching it at the time too. Yeah, so it's not my favorite type of movie where it's just watching rich people do rich things. But I can see that it's a fantasy fulfillment film, which are usually pretty popular. So, yeah, it's good. Watch it. <laughs> well, then next we move on to our faves, right? Which ended up being kind of really weirdly similar. <laughs> yeah, they were. I, I had a really similar experience watching the movie that you picked that I did the first time I saw Rapture. picked as my Mary film of 1965. You know, it's just this little English language film made by a British director set in rural France. And uh, nobody's ever really heard of it. Young Dean Stockwell is one of the stars. And, you know, Melvin Douglas is in it. You know, he was a big 30s screwball comedy actor. He was, you know, played opposite Garbo and uh, Ninochka. 
but he's sort of at the end of his career here and not much of a star anymore. And it's really just sort of a four-person chamber piece. It's about this girl, Patricia Gotzi, who um, plays Agnes, this 15-year-old who uh, has some emotional issues, some maturity issues. She's, you know, just just the side of insane, I guess, which is one of the problems she's dealing with in this film is that she's sort of worried that she is crazy and that she belongs in, you know, with the insane people in the asylum that is not too far from the house where they live in coastal France. You know, her father is a, a widower and an old man, and she's kind of being raised by their housekeeper, Karen, uh, played by Gunnel Lindblom, who is best known as one of Ingmar Bergman's stable of actors she she always plays the kind of earthy women in all his films you know she's always ready for a tumble in the hay agnes is very childish for her age she's still playing with dolls and her father gets upset with her that she's playing with dolls and early on in the film she begs her father for an old suit that he has in the attic so that she can make a scarecrow out in the yard once she makes a scarecrow the, the scarecrow then becomes her boyfriend and you know she dances with the scarecrow and and has lunch with it and talks to it and treats it like an actual human being until one rainy wet evening uh escaped a prisoner played by dean stockwell joseph steals the suit off the scarecrow and, and hides in, in the shed behind their house and when he appears when agnes finds him she thinks that it's her scarecrow come to life so she thinks that she created Joseph and uh, and that he belongs to her and it's, so the, the family kind of takes in this escaped prisoner and uh, you know they all kind of have their use for him. Karen just uh, kind of wants to sleep with him because he's young and sexy and and Melvin Douglas is a is a retired judge and wants to use him to promote this idea of justice that he has and is writing a book about. Patricia Gotzi is amazing in this movie. Uh, she didn't have much of a career. She was in Sundays in Sibley previous to this, which I think won at Cannes, was sort of a big French New Wave film that was a pretty big hit around the world. She was sort of an in-demand young actress, and uh, you know for good reason. She's, she's fantastic in this, but she didn't do much more after this film. But yeah, the first time I saw this Film. I, I knew nothing about it, and I sort of went into it blind, and it just sort of creates this really strange world. You don't really know what's happening or where the story's going to go, and it, I was kind of hypnotized by it. It really was kind of the movie that started me down the path of wanting to watch only 60s movies. I, I remember the Letterboxd review I wrote for this movie back when I first saw it said something like, I only want to watch... You know, movies I've never heard of from the 60s from now on. Uh, I, I want every movie watching experience to be like this. Just, you know, something that totally catches me off guard is unlike anything I've ever really seen before. It was such a memorable experience the first time I saw it. Watching it again, I still really like it, but sort of knowing where the, the story was headed and, and knowing what to expect from it, I didn't have quite the same sensation watching it a second time, but. I think it's good. You like this movie? I do like this movie. I, I mean, it was definitely interesting. I, I didn't have the reaction that you had, but it is definitely unique and pretty fascinating, especially for the 60s. I mean, for one, it's gorgeous looking. This movie is shot really interestingly. It's all sort of handheld camera shots that 
really explore the space and take you through every detail of each room before it sort of settles into this close-up on somebody's facial expression that's about as complex as as the settings are. (laughs) Like you're not too sure what any character is ever really thinking at any given time. And there's really nothing obvious happening in this movie. Even again, from how it's shot, there's like that scene in the end uh, of the film where Agnes and Joseph end up moving to the city and sort of trying to escape. And there's this shot of her. She, you know, drops something into the sewer and we get this shot from uh, the last, her last dollars is what ends up getting washed away. And and we get this shot of her from inside the sewer looking up at her. And it's just really weird. Like (laughs) clearly like some cameraman's bright idea, like, Oh, it'd be really, really awesome if we did this, you know, but it is, it's a great, it's, it's just weird. It doesn't make any sense. There's absolutely no reason for, us to see her from this angle other than to kind of just create this further distance from, you know, a character having like a really emotional moment. So, you know, this movie is, it's, it's fascinating. And I also, even the plot, I mean, like I, I get it, you know, like I've, I've fallen in love with clothing before. (laughs) (laughs) I've like seen a really nice suit and been like, yeah, that's my boyfriend suit, man. He's real. But I also, I have some problems with this movie. (laughs) Mainly, I just cannot stand the main character. Yeah. I hate her. And it sort of sucks because I also find it really refreshing to see like a non-typical teenage girl being told with such complexity, especially in 1960s, where as we've mentioned, you really rarely get complex female characters And if they are, they're usually just like contemplating whether they should get married or not. (laughs) That's like about the most you get. Uh, Not totally, but a lot. And so I like I I appreciated her character being really intensely unique and interesting and complex, even by modern standards. But I just hated her. She just gave me this like PTSD of just every little bit goddamn brat I knew growing up who I just have absolutely no patience for. I have no patience for people that have no empathy. (laughs) I turn into someone who is just as terrible as those people because I just, it drives me completely crazy and up the wall. And I just found Agnes to be so unsympathetic and just awful and obnoxious and spoiled. And even though she clearly has issues, I also think there is a lot to be said about how she was raised, which I think is to the film's credit brought up, you know, like I don't even think the film is blaming Agnes and I I can't even blame her fully either, but I just hated her. I just couldn't stand her. I just like every time something bad would happen, I would just be like, you know, or her father would, would threaten to like thrash her. I'd be like, do it. (laughs) (laughs) It just, she just made me so irrationally angry. (laughs) I I found her sympathetic. You know, it's uh, growing up is hard. (laughs) You know, one of the things I also I I really um, appreciated about this movie is that it's showing a teenager who is having like a a lot of uh, sexual feelings for an older man. And 
that's like one of these totally taboo issues, especially nowadays. For some reason, people love to, to seem to pretend that like teens don't know what sex is, which I just do not understand why this has become some like bizarre <laughs> topic of conversation that like, you know, how dare you? Uh, you know, it's the one thing to sexualize a minor, which unfortunately this movie does because it has Patricia Goetze, who's I think was 14 when she was doing this. Yeah, 14 or 15. I th- think she was the age she was playing. Right. And then she's sitting here making out with Dean Stockwell and there's even her lying in bed naked with him where she's pretty clearly at least topless you don't see anything, but it's just, you know, it's like (laughs) Dean Stockwell, who's 30, by the way. So it's just, it's creepy. You know, there's, there's really a a big difference. And and I can see why somebody would not want to watch this movie just based on that alone. And I think that that's completely valid, but I did like that. They're showing a teenager who is confused and constantly horny because it's that, you know, that's what teenagers are. That's just, you're going through a lot at that time in your life. And I think that that came across as very realistic, especially to have a younger girl having those feelings, which again, you just very rarely get to see. Uh, you know, I feel like movies come out in the last five, 10 years about this exact topic and, and everyone lauds praise on like, oh, thank, finally it happened, you know? <laughs> so it's like, I, that's fine. So between the fact that I think Agnes is like a pure evil... <laughs> gremlin of a child (laughs) and she's not a bad seed she's not doing awful things on purpose she's just confused i think she's just dim-witted quite frankly and i i well that she is that's that's (laughs) very much what we're supposed to think which is also kind of what makes this movie interesting what do you do with a child like this who has a tenuous grip on reality and is not particularly smart or you know, capable, but, uh, you know, she, she still has these sexual feelings and, you know, Dean Stockwell is far more sexualized in this movie than she is. And, uh, you know, makes it clear that we're seeing him from her perspective for most of the movie, you know, what, what do you do? What, what is a girl like this supposed to do with those feelings? I think it's great. Well, I really like that this sort of ends up turning into this bizarre warped teenager, version of like Pygmalion it's like this lonely little girl living with her widowed father and and she uh mistakes that this convict as her beloved scarecrow coming to life and like magical creatures that are gifted consciousness you know like reality kind of just it it folds in on itself and the fantasy can't survive because I mean he's not a scarecrow he's a 30 year old convict and and then when they go move to the city which is even more like you know well, we don't need you we're gonna run away and it turns out like oh you need like a job like <laughs> and moving in with a teenager actually is a terrible idea for multiple reasons beyond the fact that they're totally useless <laughs> so she sits around at home and just sort of waits for him to come home and then gets angry when he doesn't want to talk to her or acknowledge her because he spent all day working kind of kind of situation and so like the entire fantasy it really collapses on on the reality of everything so you have that as you said this teenager who has a tenuous grasp on reality and a convict who thinks that he's managed to escape completely and in the end everyone's miserable (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's great. My like, kind that's, of movie. That's a, it is your kind of movie. It's miserable and horny. That's <laughs> Bart's kind of movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, another thing I kind of found interesting about this movie is it really captures the tyranny of children. <laughs> Just like how Agnes kind of holds her entire family hostage over just the fact that she has no grip on reality and she's a totally selfish being that just, <laughs> you know, who, who learned this from her parents, but um, it's just like a total monster. Like she throws like tantrums and she gets rewarded for it because what can you do? You can't hit her, you know, you can't kick her out. She's just stuck there and you're stuck with her. <laughs> Like, I thought she was so cruel to, you know, her nanny, who is perfectly nice to her and even goes out of her way to help her take this really creepy, by the way, scarecrow out of the the attic and set it up in her bedroom, which is the most terrifying thing. If I woke up and I saw that thing sitting across from me, I would definitely pee the bed. (laughs) But, uh, you know, the nanny is like goes out of her way to, to be mostly friendly to her. And then she tries to use the fact that the nanny has a boyfriend who crawls through the window she uses that against her to to get her to do things for her, which is just like, again, like, what are you going to do? Like, she's not doing anything terrible, but she doesn't want to lose her job. And then, I mean, I guess I don't want to spoil this because I really do think it's a good movie and you should watch it. But the scene where the nanny does finally walk away is incredibly powerful and terrifying. <laughs> yeah. For how awful and selfish Agnes is, you, you do feel like Karen the the housekeeper really does care about her and they're you know kind of friends so when things turn out badly and and Karen leaves it's uh one of the the toughest moments in the movie but what what made you love this so much was it just how unique it is or did you feel like you walked away with something that you were really thinking about it was really more just the atmosphere and the way the movie was put together that stuck with me not having any expectations and and uh just having this completely novel experience watching this movie, it just really stuck with me. And uh, a big part of my realization when I first saw this movie is that there are all of these, like, you know, thousands and thousands of movies that, you know, were not made for a lot of money and that you're know, basically have been, you know, lost to time. And, uh, you know, they're still out there for for people to watch. Like, you just have to know where to find them. That was what really struck me watching this movie and why it was such an impetus for me to want to do something like this, the Cinema 60s show, is that all of the systems I had, all of the lists that I made, you know, every all the ways I had for trying to decide which movies to watch didn't help me find this particular movie. And uh, it just really made me rethink how I should approach, you know, figuring out what I want to watch, you know, how, how I'm making lists of things to watch and, and how to go about finding the movies I really want to see. Because, you know, I, I mean, I guess it's just that that sensation that movie lovers have, you know, every every few years or so where it's just like something completely out of the blue that really struck them the right way and, you know, something completely unexpected and it just sort of makes you remember why you love movies and it's also the kind of movie where I'm glad you you liked it or at least can can see that it's a, a good movie because 
my response to it was such a personal thing that I, I couldn't necessarily say that anybody else would enjoy the movie the way that I did. You confirming that it's actually a pretty decent movie makes me feel better about recommending it to people. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was actually the director, John Gillerman, who uh, is honestly a pretty lousy director. He did some rebooted Tarzan movies in the in the early 60s and some early Peter Sellers movies, and then later went on to do you know bad 70s movies like uh, Towering Inferno and the King Kong remake and Sheena in the 80s. Uh, he made a lot of jungle movies for whatever reason, but he's not a very well-respected director. But he's somehow like, you know, connected with this one. I I read somewhere that he considers this to be this is the movie he made that he's most proud of. But it's so unlike anything else that he made that uh, you know, I just just wish he'd sort of followed up on this and tried to make more interesting movies like this one in his career because uh, I, I would have loved to have seen more things from him in this style, but didn't happen just went back to his jungle movies <laughs> well it's interesting because the way that you watch movies and the way that you found films you know you've talked about you go to these lists of the best films and you'll watch the entire thing which i always think is admirable but it's funny because i never ever do it <laughs> which then leads to this bizarre embarrassment when someone's like oh, you haven't seen Mary Poppins <laughs> or whatever, you know, like there's some big name film or some big name director where I've seen all of the weird little things that they did, but I haven't seen the top five or whatever. I end up finding these things in a kind of backwards sense in the back door because I end up looking instead for, I mean, I follow directors, but then I'll go through the films and find whichever appeals to me, or maybe I'll follow an actor and, you know, see what they did early on if I like something that they did otherwise. So I'm always trying to look for something that stands out to me. And sometimes it's even as simple as like, oh, I like the poster, you know, like... <laughs> So I end up having this weird, you know, I've watched thousands of movies, but like I have weird gaps in, in my knowledge. It's more overt when it comes to certain decades, like the 80s, like I just, <laughs> I just don't, like, it's fine. You know, there's some, the really good movies from the 80s are great, but I won't even get into that. But anyhow, I there's things where I'm, I'm missing out on, but at the same time, I agree with you because at the end of the day, I'd rather be watching a movie like this than I would be you know, watching some big uh, blockbuster or something like Vertigo or whatever is meant to be the top film now. Citizen Kane, I'm not going to shit on. Love that movie. But, <laughs> you know, so it is interesting. Yeah, canons are useful, but only to a certain extent. Like, okay, here's a list of all the greatest films. So if I watch all of them, I'm going to see a bunch of great films. But the most memorable viewing experiences, at least for me, are things like this, where I feel like I kind of discovered it on my own. And, you know, nobody told me this was a great movie. Why isn't this movie in the thousand and one movies you must see before you die? And just makes me rethink value judgments in, in general and like how personal an experience movie watching is and how what really matters is how a movie affects you personally and whether thousands of critics say, oh, this is the greatest movie ever made. It doesn't mean that you're going to like it. And the, the opposite too, like the, you know, the, the worst reviewed movie of all time, you could watch it and think this works for me. It really is gambling at the end of the day. <laughs> you're, like, <laughs> you're just riding for that, that feeling when you finally get it. Like, cause it is, it's like 
the second you find a movie that just makes you that excited about movies again, even after I watch like a movie a day half the time at bare minimum, and then, you know, you kind of go through the motions and then one day you hit on something totally randomly and you're like, oh my God. And then suddenly you're like, well, well we're going to get more. <laughs> it's the only happiness I have in my miserable life. The really interesting thing is that the film that you picked <laughs> as your Mary film, I kind of had the same experience with. You know, I watched it, never having seen Fists in the Pocket before. I sat down to watch this movie and was just completely blown away by it and wondered where this movie was all my life. I, I'd seen a couple other Marco Bellocchio movies, more recent ones, and they didn't do much for me. So I never thought I was that interested in his first film, but it really hit me hard. It's a unexpectedly uh, wonderful experience watching this film. So thank you for, for picking it. <laughs> Because this one's also miserable and slightly horny. <laughs> yeah, this is such a messed up movie, which is funny. I think maybe part of why I even connected to this one a bit better than Rapture is because there is sympathy for the main characters, but it's not as much <laughs> because they're, they're quite miserable and cruel even and lack empathy for sure. And that's exactly what I liked about it. <laughs> This is a mean little movie, Fist in Pocket. It's about a family with four siblings. There's three brothers and a sister, and they live in a, a villa in Italy. It's an Italian film. The mother is blind, and all of the siblings suffer from epilepsy, except for the eldest son, who's named Augusto, who is sort of like a greaser. <laughs> looks like a teddy boy. He walks around with his leather jacket, and he's conventionally handsome and kind of has to do everything for the family, including driving them everywhere because everyone else is... Julia is epileptic too. I know that Alessandro, Ale, and Leone are. She talks about it. Well, she's definitely got some problems, whether epilepsy is one or not, I'm not sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the film basically follows Alessandro, who they call Ale, as he decides to kill everyone <laughs> he decides that life is not worth living and he has to take out and he's there that him and his entire family is a burden to augusto and he's gonna take them all out he decides to trick augusto into letting him drive to go see their father's grave and his plan is to drive the car off the cliff and Basically, the rest of this film is, you know, it's, this is another one. I, I really like this movie and Bart really liked this. So I don't want to spoil the movie completely, but it <laughs> it only gets meaner from there, I suppose. <laughs> I will say that his initial suicide attempt doesn't work out and he has to rethink it. But it is this sort of strange film about this homicidal brother trying to kill everyone in his family and his older brother not really taking him seriously because he's so used to having to do everything for him. But also sort of hoping that maybe Ale is really going to do it because in reality, 
it would be a real weight off Augusta's shoulders if he didn't have to take care of his family anymore. Right. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it would be a dark comedy, but it's not. I mean, I, I guess it's got moments of humor, but it's really sort of an anguished, serious film about a really messed up family who uh, needs to fix themselves somehow. And whether them all dying is the answer, I, I don't know. But uh, I think what really struck home for me is that Ali sees him and Julia, who I don't know, at the very least is, you know, has incestuous feelings for her brother, but she's in a way sort of like Agnes in the last movie. She just doesn't have much of a grip on reality and not really capable of taking care of herself. Leone is kind of mentally disabled and has some more major problems and is the least developed of the characters just because he's not a, a fully functioning adult. He's also very childlike. But it's Ale sort of seeing himself and his family as a bunch of abnormal people who have no place in this world full of normal people like his brother. You know, in a different kind of movie, you know, like a like Repo Man or something, you identify with the non-normals. It's like, you know, screw all the normal people. We're all messed up and uh, we're the cool ones because we're not like them. But this movie shows the other side of that where it's like the inability to fit in and, and function in this world that's not set up for people like them to survive in is uh, it hit home. I, I see it's funny because it, when I watch this, I had a similar reaction initially, and I wasn't really sure what to make of it because it's just such a messed up movie. It's so cruel. It's it's like unique, you know, like Rapture. It's totally unique for the decade, but it's also just so vicious and explicit in comparison to other things that we've watched. It's just openly callous. It flaunts sin and evil, and it, and it revels in it in a way that you especially don't really see in Italian films even. Um, except for the, a couple few, but I actually, it, it took me a while to kind of think it through and maybe I'll sort of think it through out loud right now too. And you can tell me if this makes any sense, (laughs) but, um, I was looking up other reviews of this and it seems that like the consensus is that this is sort of a movie about the changing tide, you know, like the, the youth rebellion kind of movie because it ends with a fire, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I won't say of what, but, you know, it does have this very sort of youthful uh, rebellion type ending, I suppose. But I kind of, I to me, I sort of focused a bit more on the fact that it, it did really feel like a movie about the pains of having a disability in 1960s society. And in that way, it's sort of two movies, because on one hand, it's like almost this sort of later boom film which is something that we'll definitely get around to talking about. The boom films of 60s Italy are are like some of the best stuff that came out of Italy. But a lot of those movies, which are all economic, you know, it's talking about this time in Italy where everyone made a whole bunch of money really, really fast and then just got totally spoiled and ridiculous and didn't know what to do with themselves. And, And most of those films hinge on like a moralistic message of tut tutting consumerism or asking the audience to look inward. But this one is so much more nihilistic and damning. And I feel like the tension here is really with the idea of family and with the the idea of the rigid boundaries of routine. And, you know, they're not your typical family and they don't fit into your typical mold. 
and to try and force them into one is cruel, if not more so than murder. (laughs) (laughs) It's as cruel. Hmm. And I think that that's what Ale would argue, basically, and that this sort of forced appearance of being a, a perfect nuclear family just lends to cruelty and this sort of dictatorship-esque <laughs> rule. And violence, at the end of the day, is really the only reaction to this because you, you can't escape it otherwise. So even when Augusto hears his brother's going to kill everybody, in his heart, he kind of accepts that as the only option. And you can sort of view that as being just the cruelty of the normal, quote unquote, you know, looking at the the disabled and thinking, well, they're not fit to live in society, which is clearly what the message is being projected onto this family. But it's also, I think, to watch Ali and to watch his siblings have to deal with trying to fit into a society that won't let them function or be happy it's just as cruel it's just as evil and it reflects back on the standards as being really the restrictive chains more so than their disability and that's even more on parade by the ending and by the choices that certain characters make (laughs) i don't want to i don't want to spoil it but in that way it it kind of reminded me of leaclise antonioni because monica vitti in that movie she's inherently at odds with society And she takes all of her pain and she ends up turning it inward. And she sort of neuters this more violent aspect of herself by just sort of removing herself from society and removing herself from her dreams and dealing with things she doesn't like. And it's just the same sort of the oppressiveness of normality, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. And the fact that you mentioned that this is kind of regarded as a youth rebellion movie I I watched this and it didn't really occur to me that it was I mean I mentioned Repo Man so obviously somewhere subconsciously I was thinking youth rebellion too because it is just sort of like us and them we're against the normals this movie is not asking us to side with the abnormals which is why it doesn't really feel like a youth rebellion movie you know because that's how those movies function in the 60s is you're you're rooting for the the motorcycle uh lsd taking uh peter fonda's and against the wife swapping alcoholic parents but this movie doesn't function that way at all but it's still i can sort of see how it would be considered part of that genre well i think that like arm's length part of this is actually what I enjoyed about it. Because it doesn't ask you to identify with these characters, you can sort of indulge in this sort of part of yourself that is maybe just as cruel as these characters without having to feel like, I guess it's not even indulging. Like you can just sort of understand where he's coming from. And like, there's a sort of morbid curiosity to watch this while still knowing that everything that Ollie's doing is reprehensible and, and that he's a bad person, but you do feel for him. I don't know. I, I, I he's sympathetic in the sense that I, again, and I mean, what, what else can you do? <laughs> you know, he's just sort of burns the whole thing down in a way, literally at the end. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting movie. I actually wouldn't mind watching this one again, but I also don't want to watch it again so soon. <laughs> It's not an easy film at all, but I like to delve in the grime. I like to feel bad. So 
it's a good movie if you're in you're in that kind of mood. It's a good feel bad kind of movie. <laughs> it's kind of scored like a horror movie. The Ennio Morricone score is very much like the Gialli that were being made at the time. These serial killer, like very arty horror movies that were coming out of Italy. And this movie could almost more easily be seen as a horror film than a youth rebellion film because it's definitely got murder on its mind. And uh, what you're watching is not easy to watch. It's pretty horrifying, you know, not in a tense way, although there's a certain amount of suspense too to it. I guess what, in part what's sort of terrifying about this movie is it really does show you the power that comes with murder, <laughs> the power that comes <laughs> in, in killing another person or attempting to at, at bare minimum. It doesn't mince words with that. It's sort of very clear that... You know, for someone who has no power in his life, the only way that he can feel power is to indulge in this, like, totally abhorrent way of being. And it's messed up that he feels that he has to get to that point to have any sense of power in a society that is just otherwise so cruel that it, it turns him into reflecting it right back at it. He is sympathetic because his reasons for being homicidal are pretty unselfish or seemingly unselfish at first but when he starts to indulge he really like he very quickly gets this god complex about it and becomes the sort of evil murderer that he is very much not at the beginning of the film that's well handled so don't do eugenics folks it's a slippery slope yeah once once you get started down that path there's no turning back which is a great segue into... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's new, Pussycat? What's new, Pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. What's new, Pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. Pussycat, Pussycat, you're so thrilling and I'm so willing to care for you. So go and make up your being. My pick for a movie that I would obliterate from the face of the earth if I could. <laughs> <laughs> I hate this movie, and uh, watching it a second time it didn't, didn't change it at all. It's a sex comedy, the most 60s sex comedy of all time. I've been a Woody Allen fan for a long, long time, so I felt that it was pretty essential to see this film because it was the first film he ever wrote. He didn't direct it. Clive Donner directed it, who's not, you know, he's done some interesting things. Uh, I know you like The Caretaker, the Harold Pinter film that he did, but he's no great director. And the big problem with this film is that, you know, in retrospect, we know what a Woody Allen movie is supposed to be, and we understand how that Woody Allen style of comedy is supposed to be played. And this movie cannot figure that out. It takes Woody Allen's jokes and just plays them completely the wrong way. Woody Allen has a small, you know, a supporting role in this film. And his scenes are good because he knows how to play his own material. But Peter Sellers and Peter O'Toole and Romy Schneider and, you know, none of these people know how to get laughs out of Woody Allen type material. Uh, it's about the sex addict played by Peter O'Toole who just can't get enough of it. But he's hardly to blame because every woman he meets just throws herself at him uh, because, well, he's Peter O'Toole. 
but he's in love with Carol, played by Romy Schneider, and he's really trying to stop being a sex addict so that he can be faithful to her, and and, uh, that's, that's what he really wants, but he's just so, he's addicted. So he goes to Peter Sellers, who's a therapist who's just as sex crazed as he is, only he's got a hideous spinal tap wig and glasses, so he's not very sexually appealing to the ladies. So he doesn't have the kind of luck that Peter O'Toole does. So the humor is supposed to come from how sexually frustrated he is. And then Woody Allen plays Victor, a friend of Peter O'Toole's, or Michael is the character's name in this movie. And uh, he's even more sexually frustrated, even more of a nebbish, you know, no luck with the ladies kind of guy. He's in love with Romy Schneider, Peter O'Toole's fiance. And so when Peter O'Toole is off, trying to make it with with all the ladies in, in Paris. Another British production that's set in France. Woody Allen is just trying to get it on with Romy Schneider and having no luck. And and those are the, the really the only funny scenes in the film. Um, and then, you know, there are all sorts of hijinks and, you know, everybody's chasing everybody else around trying to get it on. And it's just not very funny. And I kind of blame Peter O'Toole. This whole movie is supposed to hang on his charm and he's just not very funny in it. I think Warren Beatty was originally supposed to play the role, but walked off thinking that they couldn't make the film without him, and but they just replaced him with Peter O'Toole. <laughs> Warren Beatty would have actually been perfect. Well, we know he is that guy in real life, so. Yeah, that's why he would have been perfect. I mean, look, don't get me wrong, this movie stinks. <laughs> 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 it's a bad movie. But I haven't watched this in like a decade. And so I was putting it off, rewatching it for this episode as long as I could. I was like dreading watching it. And then I finally watched it. And I don't know if the like light from the moon was refracting properly off of the beams that are emitting from my, you know, ray head. <laughs> but. I kind of liked it this time around. Like, I like not that. Like, look, it still sucks. Like, but like, don't get me wrong, <laughs> it still sucks. But it made me. It was more fun this time around. And I don't know if it was in part because I knew what I was getting into and had the lowest dirt low expectations. But I kept hearing Woody Allen's lines shine through a misreading, and I kept sort of correcting it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> like auto-tuning the comedy or something and if it was said with like a slightly different cadence it they would be pretty funny like not like the best Woody Allen movie but like they would have been a lot better because I agree with you this is just shot incorrectly it's cast incorrectly I think a lot of it's the director's problem I don't think the director really got it I think the director got the horny aspect of it and missed all the other little nuances of it and fine, whatever. But I don't know. There's something about this. <laughs> something about this just made me laugh this time around. And not like knee slapper, but like it. I just, I had fun. I just like, there's such a great cast in this, even though they're all kind of terrible in it. I just had really a bunch of fun watching them. I liked watching Peter O'Toole. Like I liked watching Paula Prentice. You know, like, I thought she was actually, her character was really good. As Lisbian. 
Well, the problem and like the biggest, the other biggest issue with this movie is the fact that like it just is too long and it gives, it's a little too one note. Like I think it would have really benefited from having another punch up writer or something. Like I don't think that it's, it, it's a, it's like a green script, you know, like it's not, doesn't really have that much to fill it out. It starts off pretty strong in a way and then it just sort of peters out and then it ends up in this whole big farce where Everyone is is in a, the same hotel, and it's like a sex hotel, and uh, well, it's like a chateau, but everyone comes there for like rendezvous and menage a and whatever the hell, and so it's it ends up with all these people literally running in and out of doors and in and out of hallways and and somehow getting on a bunch of uh, go karts and chasing each other <laughs> around. <laughs> Right. You know, it's just, it's too much. It's just, it's a series of gags and it's very loosely tied together. You know, this guy can't keep it in his pants, but it's not enough to hold your interest. He loses the characters. They all just sort of dissolve. Like all the women just turn into being like needy psychos. And Peter Sellers just turns into like a straight up sexual predator. (laughs) And Woody Allen basically disappears, actually. His character is sort of forgotten. I mean, he's there, but like he barely does anything. And then, yeah, by the time we get to the go-karts, it's just super cheesy. It just, (laughs) you know, it should have ended ages ago. And like parts of and it sucks because, again, there's like even... That ending, the best scenes of it is where you get two people walking down a hallway trying to have like an intimate conversation or a secretive conversation. And you see in the background literally hordes of people running in and out of the background. And it's funny. It's like a good visual gag. It could have been, you know, a solid scene in a film if that was like the one scene of that. And instead we get 20 more minutes of that happening. And as we go into every room and there's always like three beautiful horny women in their, you know, pajamas or their underwear or whatever the heck. You know, it's just it's the same old thing. Yeah, at least we do get Ursula Andress parachuting into the finale of the film. <laughs> um, Actually, that was great. That was a great Super, scene. super horny Ursula Andress. She's becoming one of my favorites of the 60s. She's fun. You, I mean, I know you've been an Ursula Andress fan for a while. She's like the blonde bombshell that took all the weird roles <laughs> she's yeah. always like the sexy woman in him but something's like a little bit off about him yeah i don't know this movie sucks <laughs> it's, a, it's a crappy movie there's not much to say about it it's definitely a time capsule i think it's probably worth watching just so you can say you've seen what's new pussycat there's a good eight and a half dream sequence with Peter O'Toole and all the women he's ever loved coming to him. Which made sense, but then an eight and a half dream sequence morphs into Richard III <laughs> with Peter Sellers as Richard III, and I don't understand what it's trying to do there at all. It's a Peter O'Toole joke. It's just like, but that, but that's like, you know, that's how lame this, this whole movie is. It's just really flimsy. I, I actually, you know... Uh, I have many emotions and mixed emotions to negative emotions about Woody Allen as a person, which I think we've talked about this before, but I do, I love his movies. Like I, (laughs) unfortunately I love his movies uh, and especially his comedies. I I really like take the money and run and bananas are like top tier comedies for me, but this one is nowhere near any of those. It's just feels like a first film, but he's got some moments in it that are, you know, stand up to some of his best 
moments in uh, you know Sleeper, or, you know some of his straight up comedies, like his his seduction scene in the hotel where he keeps putting on the record and having to to stop it and get up and answer the door. And he Woody Allen does a perfect Woody Allen, and he's he's young and you know you sort of see this like up and comer with a lot of potential there. And it's it's unfortunately he's got such a small role that he can't carry the film at all. He's just not in it enough. But his bits are funny. It's worth it for Woody Allen fans to see. I like his bit where he says, yeah, I got a job, 20 francs a week. I get to help the girls dress and undress. And Peter O'Toole's like, nice job. And Woody Allen's like, it's all I can afford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he also has a joke in there about 12-year-olds having sex with 30-year-olds. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, well. It's a film. We've always known what Woody Allen was. I mean, that's why it's hard to hold the awful things he's done against him because he's always, he, he's told us right from the beginning what he was, a gross pedophile. So why shouldn't we believe that he would be the same in real life? Anyway, to end this discussion of this ridiculous comedy on a sour note. Uh, hey, I liked Francois Hardy as, as, in a little cameo walk-on role in the end there. Oh yeah, yeah, as the, the secretary or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's end on that note. Yeah, okay. And then we'll talk about the film that I want to kill, which is Run Home Slow. which I'm sure... Uh, you don't want to kill this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by Ted Brenner, which is the only thing he's ever done. I want to say in his life, maybe he's done other things. Yeah, okay, I don't want to kill this movie. It's not like a bad film, but it's it's not a good film. Like, it's definitely a bad movie. It, it's just super, super low budget and just very extremely weird. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's not a bad movie. It's It knows what it is. It knows that it's a super low-budget, kind of terrible film and uses that to its advantage <laughs> in a way. It knows it can get away with whatever it wants to because nobody's going to see it and nobody paid a whole lot of money to make it. So, uh, you know, let's just let Mercedes McCambridge do her thing for way too long. I don't, how long is this movie? It's It's... I'm sure it's under an hour and a half, but it feels really, really long. <laughs> yep, it's 75 minutes. Yeah. And it feels like, it feels longer than walked. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this movie in theaters, actually, which is how I knew about it. I saw this uh, ages ago at Anthology. In part, I don't even know why. I went pretty sure I went alone and... It was because Frank Zappa did the soundtrack, which I think we we watched the other Frank Zappa 60s soundtrack movie, which was The World's Greatest Sinner. And it the soundtrack's pretty solid. <laughs> it's pretty comparable. Just the, the type of movie, just the crazy low budget thing that doesn't make... This actually, compared to The World's Greatest Sinner, this movie makes a lot of sense, but they're both just really bizarre no budget things 
But it doesn't have Timothy Carey in this movie. Unfortunately, it has like a lot of very grating characters that you just <laughs> watch be like just so painful for an hour and 10 minutes. Um, this The reason why Frank Zappa did this is that the screenplay was written by his former high school teacher. <laughs> And um, the money that he got from this, he used to go buy a new guitar and he took over the lease of a recording studio and, and he, you know, essentially established Studio Z with the money that he made from <laughs> from this movie. How could he have gotten paid very much for this? I, I can't imagine anybody made any money at all. I have no idea. <laughs> that I don't know. <laughs> no idea. But I have to ask, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, do you like Frank Zappa? No. I think he's talented. I just don't like his music. Really? You are the first man I have ever met that said no. Really? Because I was going to be like, I've never, like, men love Frank Zappa, and I don't totally get it. I don't, I'm not even, like, a major Frank Zappa fan. Like, I'm kind of with you. Like, he's fine. Like, I... I've always, <laughs> like, I think his soundtracks have been fun. I find him interesting. But, like, I, I so rarely want to sit down and listen to Frank Zappa. Like, that just, that part of my life hasn't happened yet. But I feel like every single man I've ever met, like, you say Frank Zappa and their eyes light up. <laughs> <laughs> my problem is he's got such an abrasive sense of humor that he has to, like, insert into all of his songs. That If he could just... You know, if I could get past that, maybe I could appreciate his musicality, his musical ability. But, uh, but yeah, he just, uh, he's aggressively unfunny. And that's, that's a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's so weird. Wow. I'm very impressed. I'm impressed. This is, this is the first time this has ever happened. I would say typically if, if you meet some random guy and you want to impress him, be like, hey, you like Frank Zappa and just let him talk for an hour. <laughs> I swear to God, like that happens every time. It's just a weird it's just a weird thing I've noticed. Um, anyhow, well, run home slow. This is a movie about. It's a Western. <sighs> yeah, it's a Western. Uh, the Hagen family. Nell Hagen, specifically, who's Mercedes McCambridge. She is trying to retaliate the hanging of her father. And she just goes around with the rest of her family. Her rest of her family is this guy, Rit, who is a Gary Kent, who's like the rugged brother. And he gets shot like pretty quickly on into the film and they're sort of caring for him and he from the strapping lad that he initially starts off as he you know now has to be taken care of by Nell and also her other brother Kirby who is a humpbacked <laughs> you know and I'll, I'll even steal it from Letterbox. they call him a humpbacked halfwit that's not even insulting that's just literally the character this is like a character that walks around like goofy like oh what do i do da, 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 like like that and like <laughs> just that you just did his voice perfectly <laughs> and, and it is it's almost like it's this cartoonish weird bizarre and then there's this this other woman julianne who is like meant to marry rit no they're married oh they are married god <laughs> yeah they had just gotten married and that's why nell is stuck with her 
And she's even worse because she talks like, oh my God. Like that, like the, the most gratingly high pitched. She's dumb as bricks, cannot function as a, in a, as a human being. She walks around with a parasol and like this frilly white dress that makes absolutely no sense in the desert. So the four of them sort of walking through the desert, which is roughly half of this film, is, is about as sort of surreal looking as you would expect it to be. But unfortunately, the rest of the film, like there's no, there's nothing happening. Like the dialogue is terrible. Oh, the dialogue is the great. The characters are so awful. <laughs> <laughs> so you like this movie. What What's good about this film? It's like the world's greatest sinner or, you know, Little Shop of Horror, as I was thinking, is kind of like where it's just this no budget thing that knows that it can get away with whatever it wants to. So it feels free to put in whatever ridiculous stuff it wants to. It's uh, I mean, basically, it's this evil family on a trip to hell. Like they've robbed a bank, so they've got a sack full of money. They shot the sheriff who was responsible for hanging their evil father. And uh, they're, they're trying to get away to Mexico. And Rit is dying somehow manages to stay alive for almost <laughs> the whole movie. So he's dragging them down and, and his wife, Julianne, just says, well, let's get rid of him. Let's leave him behind. We can, you know, we can make our escape. The problem is that Nell, uh, Mercedes McCambridge, is, uh, oh, right. is really just concerned about carrying on the family line, the Hagen line. And then that's why she puts up with Julianne because she wants her to have She's Hagen. Fertile. Yeah, Hagen babies. And it's just watching these four evil people uh, on a road trip to hell. You know, eventually they find their way through the desert to this abandoned shack and uh, spend the whole, you know, last third of the movie there. And it's clear that they're never going to get out of there. So we're just watching how they end up tearing each other apart. The problem is there's not enough to the movie. There's not enough happening. I think the dialogue is actually really funny Mercedes McCambridge really you know, lets loose. She does what she does best. I, I wrote down some of her best lines, but uh, they, you know, without her delivering them, it might not do them justice. But she's, you know, she says things about, you know, this obnoxious Julianne. I don't even hear anything she says anymore. As far as I'm concerned, she's just a torn loose shingle flapping in the wind. And it's a lot of like really stylized dialogue like that, sort of delivered perfectly, but in this sort of endless movie that's too weird and has a lot of worthwhile stuff, but it's just kind of lost in this poorly preserved film. Like I, I looked all over for some version of this that didn't look absolutely terrible, but uh, every copy out there is like a copy of a copy of a overdubbed videotape from 1978 that's been demagnetized. I saw it in theaters on film print. It looked roughly as terrible. But I actually, I think it's really fun to watch Mercedes McCambridge and Linda Gay Scott, who plays Julianne, you know, just interact with each other and just sort of, Julianne is really kissing up to Nell for most of the movie, just trying to get on her good side because she knows that that's the only way they're actually going to make their escape is if she's on Nell's good side. But then eventually they just are at each other's throats. Linda Gay Scott is is one of these character actors that I've seen before. I, I guess she did a lot of TV. What I remembered her from was she's the French prostitute in Westworld, the movie <laughs> from the 70s. 
But yeah, the two of them are having a lot of fun in their roles. I, I don't find her character nearly as grating as you do, I guess. I couldn't stand I uh, the, her voice and and Kirby together like they are just <laughs> killing me. Though I, I will say I did write down the one line. I mean, of course, there's a scene where Julianne gets so horny that she decides that she's going to have sex with Kirby instead of Rit. And like the the spoiler, the big reveal is like basically she has sex with the, you know the other brother, and then after Rit hangs himself, Nell says, you know, then we don't have any use for Julianne anymore. Like just go kill her; she's a waste of space. And Kirby has to go and strangle her, which of course maybe she was carrying the Hagen baby, and you know I don't know who cares. I love that scene where Julianne and Kirby make nice fun in the shed next to the dead mule carcass <laughs> exactly there's a great line where they were like they had just killed this donkey because they need meat to eat which was also just like relentless like go kill the donkey i can't kill the donkey kill that donkey i don't want to do it. it's just like over and over and over but there's a good line where it's like well listen to the moonlight bouncing off a rotten carcass <laughs> It's like that sounds like a Beck lyric. Like I'm I'm down with that one. But um this movie's so relentless to me. I, I even the fun lines just get like there's too much repetition and in a way it's like a Robert Downey movie but not fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like over and over just the same thing with the same terrible deliveries and the same grating voices and and it just it makes me fall asleep. I think it's interesting. I wouldn't kill it from film history, but as a 65 movie goes, it's one of the harder ones to watch. I'll put it that way. Well. But Bart loves it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say I'll never watch it again, but I enjoyed the experience. It's a good existential Western. You know, there's no action, but it, there's a lot of, you know, discussion of the repercussions of doing evil. And, you know, Kirby finds the Bible at some point in the shack. Doesn't know how to read, but is you're constantly like pouring over this Bible and, you know, worrying about if he's going to go to hell because of all the awful things that he's done with his family. And it is what it is. I liked it. But it's hard to sit through. And that's kind of interesting you know we come up with our choices independently we, we run them by each other first but it, we mostly separately come to each other and say how about this and there's always some weird thread that we can find through all of these so I think I have a thread for this episode and I think that talking about it with you it's come out even stronger and that would be this idea of 1965 being a time of existential worry or at least some dread and or dread on the horizon and dysfunctional families, like some kind of looking inward, the suddenly like awakening and peering inward at ourselves and saying, wait a minute, something's not right here, right in the middle of the decade. Hmm. I can see that. I mean, maybe not in what's new pussycat, but, uh, <laughs> but that's about <laughs> psychiatry. That's about saying, man, I have this problem. I'm addicted to sex and I love this woman and I have to fix it. 
I guess you're right. It is sort of taking this male dream that we keep talking about, the, the dream of the 60s where money and power and all the women you want. And here it is, 65, and starting to re rethink whether that's a good goal to have, maybe. Or whether we even have it, perhaps. Though, granted, I mean, this is a crock of shit because obviously these are all really... Except for What's New Pussycat, these are all, uh, and Walked, I guess. Those are two mainstream movies, and the rest of these are completely, <laughs> completely not. But um, it is interesting, at least. I mean, obviously, what this really says more about is, is our taste in films. But it's interesting to see these little hints of things and to pretend like they're signs for what's to come. Though Walked would tell me not to do that. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> Man is Not a Bird would tell you that it doesn't matter what you think is coming. It's You're, you're just going to be stuck in the same rut for your entire life. Which arguably you could say about the end of the 60s. Let's cut to the end of Easy Rider right here. <laughs> <laughs> we blew it. We blew it, Bart. Yeah, the dream has died. Yeah, I saw connections between the pairs of movies that we picked, like Man is Not a Bird and, and Walk to... You know, the fate idea and, and rapture and fist just these sort of ugly, uh, mentally unstable, dysfunctional families and uh, and uh, what's new pussycat and run home slowly having this dated anti-establishment sense of humor that's really stuck in its time. But it's always fun to try and create some kind of sweeping generalization about what all these movies have in common. But in the end, it's just that you and I, you know, as much as we disagree on individual movies, seem to only care about the same types of movies. So, murder and sex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's it for 1965, and that's it for 2020. This will be our last podcast of the year. We're going to take a little bit of a break, right? How long before we come back? Not long. We'll be back soon. But you know what? If you miss us, you know, you can write us a little letter on reviews, on Twitter, on the Facebook, and uh, let us know. If there's something you want us to cover, actually, go ahead and reach out to us and tell us on social media because, you know what? We're open to it, right? We're, we're swingers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you're like, I like all your other episodes, but stop doing those stupid James Bond ripoff <laughs> movies. So if you feel that way about the type of content we're doing, you know, let us know. We, we don't mind the negative feedback. <laughs> or if in turn, if you're like, actually, I, I hate most of this, but I just love OSS 117. Just keep doing those. Then sure. Sure. Just tell us. I'm sure there's 500 more. <laughs> Yeah, well, we could do the German Commissar X, which is roughly the, the same thing, and there are dozens of those we could go through. And we will, because I'm here to torture Bart. <laughs> That's actually the whole reason that we started this podcast. So. so until February, I wish we had a catchphrase that we could end all our episodes with. Live long and prosper, y'all. Do the Nimoy. Sort of a peace sign except with your pairs of fingers together i can do it with both hands i can too i'm doing it right now <laughs> jealous i'm doing it go 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 
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.